Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee leaves seven people dead, including three children. Police have now identified the suspect. Lawmakers shine a spotlight on one of China's darkest crimes against humanity, live forced organ harvesting from prisoners of conscience. We'll hear from the congressman leading the effort to condemn the crime. A new poll finds that U.S. adults are attaching less importance to traditional American values. Among them are patriotism, religion and hard work. The grand jury investigating former President Trump is back at work. Meanwhile, new national polls show Trump enjoying strong leads for the 2024 Republican primary. And a clash between women's rights activists and trans activists in New Zealand. The event speaker is doused in tomato juice and other acts of violence caught on camera. We begin with a tragedy in Nashville. At least three children and three adults were killed after a shooter opened fire at a private grade school this morning. Two responding officers then shot and killed the shooter on the second floor of the Covenant School. That's according to the Metro Nashville Police Department. President Biden commented on the shooting. It's just, uh, it's sick. You know, we're still gathering the facts of what happened and why. And we do know that as of now, there are a number of people who are not going to, did not make it, including children. And it's heartbreaking, uh, family's worst nightmare. And I want to commend the police who responded incredibly swiftly, within minutes, and the danger. We're monitoring the situation really closely, Ben, as you know. And uh, we have to do more to stop gun violence. Police identified the suspect as 28-year-old Audrey Hale, who identifies as transgender. They believe the shooter was a former student at the school, but haven't yet shared a possible motive. Students who were at the school reunited with their parents at a nearby church. And turning now to Capitol Hill, where lawmakers are taking a stand against China's state-sponsored live forest organ harvesting. That is, the Chinese communist regime's systematic practice of forcibly taking organs from living pr prisoners of conscience to sell for transplant. The House voting to condemn this tonight. NTD's Molina Weiskup is on Capitol Hill with more details. Molina, what can you tell us? So the realization that the Chinese Communist Party has been involved in forcibly taking organs from prisoners of conscience first emerged more than a decade ago. And since then, many local cities around the U.S. have passed resolutions to condemn this. And now what's happening here is Congress is taking federal action on this. Now, specifically, the bill aims to hold Chinese Communist Party officials accountable and punish them if they are engaged in forced organ harvesting. And the bill will do that by providing the U.S. tools, for example, to sanction those CCP officials or block them from obtaining visas or passports. Another thing this bill aims to do is to better inform Americans of this issue so they're not unknowingly going to China to get organs from people that they may not even know have been forcibly taken from prisoners of conscience. Now, earlier we did speak to the lead sponsor of this bill, Congressman Chris Smith, who has been working on this issue here in Congress for more than 25 years. He goes into more depth on the issue. We'll play that interview now for you. 
This cruelty that is unimaginable uh, to think of 28-year-olds being marched into these hospitals, uh, arrested simply because they're Falun Gong or Uyghurs or some other disadvantaged group, uh, to have their bodies invaded in a way that kills them and provides two to three organs per person for the Chinese Communist Party. This is a, a cruelty that is unimaginable. The victims in terms of loss of life and loss of organs uh, are the Chinese people. Uh, they are, again, disproportionately young and very, very healthy. They prey upon the Falun Gong, for example, because they are so healthy. Uh, there are these 301, there's a 301 hospital, that's what it's called, in Beijing, and there are other hospitals like it, where forced organ harvesting is being done to inure to the benefit of Chinese Communist Party officials. So if Xi Jinping himself needs a new heart or liver or lungs or anything else, uh, he will go to that hospital and he will get the organs from someone that he despises, uh, which are the Falun Gong and Uyghurs and others uh, that they have on the hate list. Uh, I mean, that, that, that just bespeaks, a, again, another level of cruelty that most Americans need to know about. Why do you think it has taken Congress so long to act on this? Great question. A lot of it has to do with disbelief. A lot of people do not think uh, that this is really happening, just like they don't think the other human rights abuses are happening either. The State Department does a modest amount of reporting, but I don't see any linkage to actual policy. Where is the president, the secretary of state, uh, right on down the line, but starting with the president and the vice president, raising this face-to-face -face with Xi Jinping and their interlocutors uh, uh, as they meet. Have you heard of it? I haven't. Uh, and, and it's about time it was front and center, because uh, it, it is also a tip of the iceberg of all the other abuse that goes on each and every day uh, in prisons, especially the use and the pervasive use of torture. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you so much. Now, this bill did gain support from Republicans and Democrats. Uh, China has been a main focus for the House during this Congress. A similar bill passed the House previously a couple of years ago, but it has since stalled in the Senate for years. Now, during this Congress, Senators Chris Coons, a Democrat, and a Republican, Senator Tim, um, Tim Scott, Tom Scott, Tom Cotton, sorry, did introduce a bill over on the Senate side. So now, essentially, it's in the Senate's court. It's up to Senate leaders to really make this a priority. Thanks, Melina. An important issue that we'll continue to keep an eye on. And next, are traditional American values in decline? A new poll finds that the nation's once-defining values are decreasing in importance to Americans. The Wall Street Journal and the NORC Center for Public Affairs Research published a new poll on priorities that once defined the national character of the U.S. The survey found that Americans now consider such values to be less important than in the past. 38% of those surveyed say patriotism is very important to them, compared to 70% back in 1998 and 61% in 2019. 39% say religion is very important to them, compared to 62% in 1998 and 48% in 2019. A similar trend is seen in people's attitudes on having children and community involvement. 30% of those surveyed say having children is very important to them, compared to 59% in 1998 and 43% in 2019. 27% say community involvement is very important, compared to 47% in 1998 and 62% in 2019. Hard work and tolerance for others have also fallen in importance. 
On the other hand, the importance of money grew over the same period. 43% of those surveyed say money is very important to them, compared to 31% back in 1998 and 41% in 2019. Money is the only priority in the survey that grew in importance in the past quarter century. The decline in importance of traditional American values can be seen in all age groups, but it's particularly significant among young Americans. The survey involved around 1,000 U.S. adults from March 1st to the 13th. Bill McInturf, a pollster, said, These differences are so dramatic, it paints a new and surprising portrayal of a changing America. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Non-citizens, including undocumented immigrants, can vote for school board's candidates in San Francisco. This comes from a law known as Proposition N, passed in 2016 by voters. Last year, a lawsuit challenged Prop N, and a judge ruled it was unconstitutional. But the city attorney appealed and overturned the ruling. This gave non-citizens the go-ahead to vote last November. NTD's David Jang brings us insights from an attorney who recently filed a new amicus brief challenging the city ordinance. If under the current U.S. law, all students, regardless of immigration status, have equal access to an education, why can't parents have a voice, regardless of their citizenship, to participate in local school board elections? Yeah, so I think you have to look at the, I, the definition of citizenship as specified in our Constitution. So the United States Constitution in the 14th Amendment defines citizenship as all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. So historically, voting has been a right that is associated with citizens of the United States. And the idea that voting is something reserved to citizens is not a controversial concept. They, other side claims they can point to historical instances where voting has been extended to non-citizens, but even Jerry Brown, the former governor of California, very recently said that jury service, like voting, is quintessentially a prerogative and responsibility of the citizenship. This was not a controversial statement when he said it, and it shouldn't be controversial now. You filed an amicus brief on March 8th. What are some of the key takeaways? Yeah, I think a lot of what's been ignored in the discussion about voter rights and whether or not non-citizens should vote is the effect that necessarily has on people who are already voters within San Francisco. Every new vote, and particularly if it's a new vote from somebody who is not a shareholder, you know, not a citizen of the United States, dilutes the votes of people who are already there. Do you think this case will eventually go to the Supreme Court of California? I don't see how we can avoid that. The, as I mentioned, the California Constitution is very, very clear on this point. Couldn't be clearer that citizens are people that have the vote. Uh, but I think the city of San Francisco is determined to have their way on this. I would not be at all surprised if they appeal this to the California Supreme Court. All right. Thank you so much, President of Lex Rex Institute, Alexander Haberbush. The grand jury investigating former President Trump is reportedly back in session hearing evidence today. This comes after Trump's first presidential campaign rally this year. New national polls show Trump clearly leading over possible contender Ron DeSantis. According to a law enforcement source, the Manhattan grand jury investigating former President Trump met on Monday afternoon. A key figure in the investigation was seen Monday leaving the Manhattan building where the grand jury usually meets. That individual, David Packer, is a longtime Trump ally. Trump allegedly asked Packer to make hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. 
Monday marked the second time that Pecker was seen at the Manhattan building. Some say this suggests that his testimony could be crucial to prosecutors. As the case goes on, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg arrived at his office in New York under tight security. Monday's hearing is the first in the past seven days. A week ago, Robert Costello testified on behalf of former President Trump. House Republicans are currently probing D.A. Bragg's investigation into Trump. This comes as many suspect the investigation is being done for political purposes. Over the weekend, Bragg responded to Republicans' probe, saying it is not appropriate for Congress to interfere in pending local investigations. This unprecedented inquiry by federal elected officials into an ongoing matter serves only to hinder, disrupt, and undermine the legitimate work of our dedicated prosecutors. Meanwhile, on Monday morning, Harvard's Center for Political Studies published a new poll. They asked voters who they'd vote for if the Republican primaries were held now. Trump got 50% of the vote, while DeSantis received 24%. The voters had been surveyed just days before Trump held the first rally of his 2024 campaign in Waco, Texas. He suggested that investigations into him were politically motivated and a weaponization of the justice system. The Biden regime's weaponization of law enforcement against their political opponent is something straight out of the Stalinist Russian horror show. Trump also laid out a four-year plan, saying if elected, he would revoke China's most favored nation status. He'd phase out all Chinese imports of essential goods and gain total independence from China. It's still not clear when the Manhattan grand jury will vote on a possible indictment of Trump. Reporting by Ariane Pazdar, NTD News. Turning now to international news. In Israel, tens of thousands of protesters filled the streets of Jerusalem on Monday. The protesters stood against changes to Israel's judicial system. And according to the Jerusalem Post, Prime Minister Netanyahu then postponed voting on the bill to give time for a debate. The proposed changes include allowing the parliament to override the courts and giving the executive branch more authority over Supreme Court appointees. The government says it's to rein in activist judges, but Israelis have been protesting for weeks. Netanyahu said he decided to freeze the vote out of responsibility to the nation. He also said the country was on a dangerous path and he would not allow it to descend into civil war. He especially criticized protesters who are refusing to serve in Israel's military. The Israeli government is now expected to transfer leadership of the National Guard on Sunday. This is to pacify the government party that threatened to split from Netanyahu's base if the bill was paused. The national security minister who will gain control of the Guard is a leader within that party. Critics said that that will give him his own militia. The vote is scheduled to resume in April. And a clash between women's rights activists and trans activists in New Zealand. A trans activist doused the speaker at an event called Let Women Speak in tomato juice. The activist then said into a microphone, I want her to be full of blood. I dropped a liter of tomato juice because I want her to be full of blood because that's what she's advocating for. She's advocating for our genocide. And I want her to be full of blood. But people remind her that she's advocating for our extermination. That's after taking the stage and emptying a bottle of juice onto the speaker, Kelly J. Keen Minchel, a British women's rights campaigner who also goes by the name Posey Parker. Soon after, Parker, trying to leave the event, was faced with pressure trying to make her way through the crowd of attendees and protesters surrounded by security guards. The event, sending shockwaves across the seas, 
tweets on the topic going viral, and even Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling remarking that women have become used to outright denial of reality. And earlier today, I spoke with the Freedom Education Ambassador at the Independent Women's Forum, Xi Van Fleet, for her perspective. Van Fleet survived China's Cultural Revolution and now speaks about communist influences in the culture here. Xi Van Fleet, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Xi, you've seen the videos of the women's rights speaker being doused in tomato soup. The trans activist who did that action said that she wants the woman to be full of blood, actually. So you've said that today it's tomato soup, tomorrow it will be real blood, because this is part of a Marxist revolution. Could you s explain more about that to us? For, for yes, because I said that not because I read something. I said that because I experienced that is called the Chinese culture revolution. And I was a, a schoolgirl when that happened. And people don't know. This started with like a verbal abuse of people that Mao deemed as the enemy of the state. So soon it become real violence. The first person to die in the hands of the uh, Red Guard, which is today's Antifa, exactly the same thing, is a principal of a middle school for girls. And the principal was deemed as a state, uh, the enemy of the state, because Mao categorized them as the bourgeois intellectual authority and need to be eliminated. So that's what the, the uh, Red Guards did. The girls killed the principal. And uh, 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 who are those girls? They're just... Uh, young girls from 12 to 16. And that's how quickly a revolution, supposed to be culture, and turned into violent, bloody Marxist revolution. And what other parallels do you see between the two movements? They, yeah, the essence of a cultural revolution is basically uh, conformity. And there's uh, no free speech. You can't even think freely if you are called to have incorrect ideas or thoughts. You're going to, you're going to be condemned by the Red Guards. You're going to have, uh, they're going to have a, a struggle session, and you're going to be uh, exiled or imprisoned. And that's what's going on today. And the women have their uh, rally called Let Women Talk. No. You can't talk because this is a Marxist revolution. It's all about silence, any opposition, any uh, dis, uh, descending opinions. And that people need to really know today you're cheering about those mobs and tomorrow it will be you, will be all of us that we just can't talk our thoughts. We have to be conformed to the correct ideology. And so what do you see as the way forward to protecting liberty today? Courage, courage. Look at those women. And I really, really admire those uh, women uh, for the uh, rally. And they showed us we have to have courage. And if we don't resist today, and tomorrow we'll be all silenced. All right, thank you so much. Shi Van Fleet, Freedom Education Ambassador at the Independent Women's Forum. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We hear about TikTok data security a lot, but what about its effect on children's well-being?
The average user in the U.S. spends over an hour and a half on the app every day. So with a range of problems like anxiety and depression linked to social media use in teens, what can parents do to help? To find out, I spoke with the founder of ScreenStrong, a resource that helps parents detox their kids from social media. Melanie Hampy, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. So happy to be here. Now, we know that social media can be addictive. Could you explain some of the brain science behind why TikTok seems to be particularly addictive? Yeah, so for sure, I think all social media is addictive. That's the way it is made. The attention engineers behind the scenes make our screens so we can't put them down. Um, for TikTok in particularly, teenagers are really drawn to information about other people, right? Especially other teenagers. So every teenager out there is looking to belong, to be accepted. They need to have this identity filled. So their brain development though is such that the emotion part of their brain, the middle part of their brain gets developed before the frontal cortex, which is the executive function part of their brain. And so this means that their judgment is not quite on board yet. Like, so it's really hard for them to make um, decisions to put down an addictive activity or to put something down after they've been on it for too long. They're all accelerator and mid-breaks. That's how we describe it to them. So they're very intelligent. A teenager is very intelligent, but they are not mature yet. And this is where adults and parents get really confused because they think their teenager is super intelligent and they should be able to control their behavior and be mature about the way they're using their devices. And TikTok, for one, is an extremely immersive social media platform. So teenagers are on their phones up to nine hours a day. It's really hard. They, they have mirror neurons in their brain, so they are mimicking what they see on their screen. And this is a big problem. Um, but that's how their brain development is. And plus, their uh, teenage brain is very geared toward addictive activities. They're craving low-effort, high-reward activities. And we know that out of all the adult addictions out there, 90% of all adult addictions start in the teenage years, and it's because of their brain development. It's just not quite there yet. And so what do you think parents can do or what can be done to effectively address these issues? Well, first of all, parents need to understand the warning signs. So, you know, parents think their kids are fine, and they may be fine, but others know their kids aren't fine, but they don't understand the warning signs. And so the warning signs are their use is increasing over time, they're sneaking around, it's the only thing that puts them in a good mood, um, they're using screen time as an escape, and it's affecting relationships. So parents really struggle with misinformation about screens because they themselves are using their own brain to, you know, to kind of understand why their kids are doing it, but we can't use our adults. But, you know, we use screens very different than our kids use their screens. So it's misinformation around how this is really affecting the teenage brain. So they're really lacking education, which is why ScreenStrong is so adamant about putting really good education out there on, um, on screens and uh, teenage brain development. And also parents have blind spots. You know, we don't think our kids are ever going to be the one to get in trouble. So we're going to have conversations with them, but conversations don't work. Conversations are necessary, but they don't work. Uh, what we need to do is just limit the access more. We believe myths. Parents are very guilty, myself included, with my four kids. Um, we believe myths that our kids are not going to like us or they're not going to have any friends or 
they're going to binge and go crazy if we don't give in to all this. But the fact of the matter is, the, the less screen immersion time they have, the more connected they get to their families. And none of those things are true. None of them are true. Moderation is very difficult. It's very difficult to moderate an addictive activity. It's like sending your kids Absolutely. to the slot machine and telling them to moderate it. They can't do that either. That's been fascinating. Thank you so much, Melanie Hempe, founder and president of Screen Strong and retired nurse. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson says he's requested a trade. The former NFL MVP tweeted this morning, as of March 2nd, I requested a trade from the Ravens organization for which the Ravens has not been interested in meeting my value. Jackson and the Ravens haven't been able to come to an agreement on a new contract. As such, Baltimore placed a non-exclusive franchise tag on Jackson back on March 7, meaning the two-time Pro Bowler can sign with another team, but the Ravens would be able to match any offer or receive two first-round picks from the team that signs him. If he doesn't find a new contract, he would then be in line to play next season for approximately $32 million. Now today's twist is the latest in a long-running saga. Last September, ESPN reported the Ravens offered a contract with approximately $200 million in guarantees that would rank second only to the $230 million guarantee Deshaun Watson got from Cleveland, which was reportedly what Jackson is seeking. And in college hoops news, after a wild weekend of play, the men's final four is all set. And what an unusual foursome it is, with Florida Atlantic, San Diego State, Connecticut, and Miami left to vie for a championship. This will be the first time ever that no top three seeds have made it this far, and the first time since 1970 that there are three first-timers to college basketball's biggest stage. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has eight games on, including a battle of MVP hopefuls, as betting favorites Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic square off in a Sixers-Nuggets clash out in Denver. And finally, for you hockey fans, the NHL has six games going, including Edmonton Oilers and star center Connor McDavid, who's far and away the league leader in points, now with 139. They play at the Arizona Coyotes. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.